0: Nothing focuses an executive's mind like the prospect of going to jail.
1: Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome Peter Salmsen. Peter is a lawyer, a leading anti corruption expert in the private sector and probably best known for his role as the general counsel in the aftermath of the Siemens bribery scandal. In the interview, Matthew and Peter talk about transnational bribery and take a deep dive into anti-corruption legislation such as the FCPA and the UK Bribery Act. Without further ado, over to the interview between Matthew Stevenson and Peter Solmsson.
2: Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest on today's episode of the podcast is Peter Solmson, who has had a long and distinguished career as a lawyer, principally in private practice, working very closely on issues connected to transnational bribery. I think probably best known for his role as general counsel of the Siemens Corporation right after the major bribery scandal broke in 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, and where he was responsible for negotiating a resolution to those issues, and since then has served in a number of other capacities, most recently as the chair of the International Bar Association's Group on Non-Trial Resolutions. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I already started uh, mentioning a little bit about your background in this area, but maybe it would be a good way for us to start our conversation to tell me and tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and experience working on corruption issues, particularly the transnational bribery issues. Well, I
0: didn't really start out as a corruption expert or even a white-collar crime guy. I was a uh, happy mergers and acquisitions lawyer for many, many years. Um, And increasingly, foreign bribery was an issue that needed to be resolved. Uh, You buy something in some complicated part of the world or propose to buy something and there would be problems with it. And the best of my clients at dealing with this was the General Electric Company, which had a a very well-rehearsed process by which they'd find the problem, walk it into the Justice Department and get it resolved either before they signed or before they closed. And I was part of that as outside counsel and then later when I was hired by GE, to become general counsel one of its business units, uh, that practice continued. So I've been interested in this, but I came to it from the acquisition standpoint.
2: And can you talk a little bit about the Siemens case? So again, I think for most of our listeners, that's it's going to be one of the most familiar transnational bribery cases. It's often described as a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act case, but that's only half true. The case originated in Germany with German authorities, and then the U.S. authorities got involved. And it was, until a few years ago, I think the largest foreign bribery case ever in terms of the total penalties that were paid. It's since been, I think, surpassed a couple of times. But but there was a very long time when it was a central focus. It really put the FCPA enforcement on the map, in a sense. It wasn't the first case, but my impression, having studied these issues a little bit, is it really got a lot of people's attention. The the headline settlement number and the prominence of, of the Siemens Corporation and so forth. And so you were brought in if I, if I understand, after the scandal had been disclosed and before it had been resolved. So what, what was that like? What was your role?
0: Well, my my perspective changed dramatically. When the police first descended upon the Siemens headquarters in the end of 2006, I was a GE and of course we were delighted. Uh, we were, uh, Siemens the biggest, biggest competitor and we had been accusing Siemens of paying bribes for many, many years and not being able to do much about it. I mean, I, in my role at GE sued Siemens a number of times to try and stop this practice, which we saw as systemic. And just as an aside, we couldn't understand why they were paying bribes because Siemens had tremendous technology and incredible global reach that we could only wish we had and amazing customer loyalty. So they didn't need to pay any bribes, but we saw them doing it all the time. And another thing he raised, which I'm glad you did raise was this case started in Germany was not an SEC or DOJ case until they read about it in the newspapers. So I was happily uh, watching this unfold from my perch at GE, seeing my biggest competitor uh, in trouble. And then uh, a few months later, after the chairman and the CEO of Siemens were required to resign, were forced to resign, they hired as the first outside CEO ever, a guy I knew very well from my GE days, Peter Loesher, who was at that point at Merck. Um, So Peter went into Siemens to turn things around. And very shortly thereafter, I got a call from him saying, help, you know, this is worse than I thought. Um, So then I switched sides, like going from the Yankees to the Red Sox or vice versa. um, And went to Munich to be the general counsel of Siemens AG. And at the same time, I was given the job of running our businesses in North and South America, something I didn't ask for, but they thought would be a good idea. So I had an interesting number of years there, first trying to resolve all the bribery cases and to get the company sort of turned around and headed in the right direction. I guess that's what I'm best known for, is being part of that team. It was really a team effort. I mean, Peter was leading it, and Joe Kayser is now the CEO, Was then the CFO, played an incredibly important part in turning the thing around. And as you know, I've written, uh, after we cleaned up, things got better. I mean, the company was better afterwards, more profitable better uh, market share, I mean, more competitive and much more worrying to GE than it had been, which is the, the real story, I think, behind all this.
2: So could you talk a little bit about how that cleanup process went? Because, it, and I ask this in part because as an outside observer, my impression just from reading about Siemens is that before all this happened, before the 2007-2008 scandal, as I think you were just suggesting bribery was their way of doing business. It wasn't an aberration where a rogue employee in some particular office paid bribes that the person shouldn't have paid. This was like corporate strategy was bribery. And I get the impression there was a lot of corruption throughout the culture at Siemens. And I gather now it's quite different in that it's a much admired company that I'm sure no huge company has no corruption or no illegality whatsoever in the same way that no reasonably sized city has no crime. But it seems like the efforts that you were part of as this team effort to clean up the company appear to be successful, or so it seems from where I sit. We often, in the world of corruption, -corruption, anti-corruption, wring our hands about how hard it is to affect genuine cultural change, to shift from a culture that's full of corruption and where it's kind of just the way things work to one where there's an understanding that's not what happens. So could you talk through a little bit, maybe obviously it's a huge and complicated process, but some highlights that might be useful to other people trying, maybe even in the absence of ma- major scandal to shift the culture of the organizations that, that they work in. How does it work? Like what, is the, what are the kinds of things that can be effective in, in making genuine change as opposed to cosmetic change?
0: Well, let me start with the word culture. I, I don't think it's part of any company or any country's culture to uh, encourage theft or bribery, bribery is basically theft. I mean, it's not culturally acceptable to steal anywhere, and it wasn't really part of Siemens' culture either. I mean, if you read the, the memoirs of Werner von Siemens, who started the company, he had problems with bribery in 1860. You know, in Russia, as big as his biggest market, and uh, he wouldn't pay the bribes. And I think one has to be careful with the word culture because it's usually a bad management culture, a bad leadership culture and not the culture of the company at all. And I think the same is true when we talk about countries. You'll know, hear this rather dismissive language, it's just the culture and you know, fill in the blank country. Not true, it's, it's poor leadership. So for us uh, at the time, it seems it was really reaching back into what was really the culture of the company. All the people I spoke with, even the people who had been caught red-handed or who later fessed up as part of our amnesty program, didn't like what they were doing, but it was in fact systemic. I wouldn't say it was strategic, but it was certainly systemic. Uh, I have a f- close friend since deceased who I knew personally many years before I went to Siemens who served as a young trainee in the management program at Siemens in, in the early sixties. And, you know, they were given all kinds of lessons about ethics and so forth. And at one point somebody came into the room and said, look, guys, there may become a time when you have to make some payments you're kind of uncomfortable with. And we've got an office that handles that. And so it, it was, it was understood. It was sadly systemic for reasons I can go into, but in terms of culture, once we made it safe for people to refuse to accept solicitations bribes, and that's another important point about you know, where this all starts, it starts with a solicitation, and to, and to know they'd be backed up if they, if they wanted to do the right thing. And the key word is they did want to do the right thing, they just weren't given the right leadership, they weren't given the right support. Uh, and most of all of the failure really was in Germany, it was at headquarters. The people in country, Brazil, China, Russia, you name it, wanted to do the right thing but they didn't get the right support they didn't get the right leadership so it wasn't as hard as it looked I missed that.
2: that's interesting and i suppose encouraging and by the way your your um, pushback on the use of the term culture i think is as absolutely right and i probably use that term inadvisedly i certainly didn't mean to suggest culture in the way that people talk about national cultures i meant more the way the company has been operating for so many years, certain kinds of expectations. Because again, my my understanding about Siemens is, again, it was not like the one-off rogue employee bribery case, but that it was part of a system. There were slush funds that were set up, orders came down from management. And it sounds like your experience was in this case, you know, people like to talk about tone from the top, but in this case, it seems like a pretty extreme example where the change in leadership really did lead to a pretty dramatic change in how the company operated. Is that fair? That's absolutely right.
0: I mean, and to be one has to be fair here too that there were a lot of people within Siemens trying to do the right thing just against enormous odds because the senior leadership failed them and I can there were people who very courageously uh, fought against this system of paying bribes but it was it was it was banal I and mean, my favorite story is that in order to launder the money they were using at one point this goes back a number of years. Uh, The guys who were in charge of the paymasters would go to one uh, bank branch on Marienplatz, you know, sort part of Munich and take out a huge amount of cash and put it in, in uh, suitcases and then take it across the Marienplatz to a different banks branch and deposit it, thereby cutting the chain of custody or the chain of traceability. One guy was carrying so much cash, he hurt his back and put in for workman's comp. I mean, this was just normal life for these guys. And, it was not just tolerated, but it was tolerated by the most senior people. There were businesses that were worse than others. Again, there were, when I was there, about 50 different P&Ls at at Siemens, from light bulbs to nuclear power plants. They go to market differently. They they are in different countries, by and large. Uh, There's not a complete overlap. So different businesses were more heavily involved than others. And I also want to come back to the word culture. You're not alone. I mean, every management consultant, I mean, and half the law firms use this word about changing the culture. I'm just raising my finger to say, careful here, it's probably not what you mean.
2: It's a perfectly sensible uh, caution, and I, and I appreciate it. And I want to come back actually to something you said earlier on that I found intriguing, which was that, in your view, Siemens didn't need to do this. And I guess the broader question here, it seems almost like a silly or banal question, but why do companies pay bribes abroad to get business? And the answer seems obvious. They do it because they think if they don't, they're going to lose contracts. They're going to lose opportunities. They're going to be uh, beaten by competitors who are less scrupulous. I assume that must be right at some level. But in a case like Siemens, where your perception is they didn't actually need to be engaging in these kinds of dishonest practices to do well. Was it just unethical or greedy leadership? Was it a misperception about the strength of their position in terms of their ability to compete while maintaining high integrity? Do you have a sense of what leads companies like Siemens, not these fly-by-night operations, to to engage in systemic bribery of this kind?
0: Well, you know, it changed over the years. I've talked to some of the very old men who were in charge of the strategic decision to start paying bribes uh, after the second world war. And they have an elaborate justification for why they did it. But the bottom line is fear, fear that, you know, they'd lose business. And, uh, you know, that they, that they, if they said no, they'd lose the business. And what experienced, knowledgeable, disciplined business people know is that's not the case. You say no and you get the business anyway. And I knew that from the GE years, So I was pretty relaxed in my, you know, operating role that when we said no to people in difficult places, um, we'd get the business anyway. You know, nice try. I mean, we weren't really in the business trying to catch bad guys. We just wanted bad stuff not to happen. And the easy way to do that is just say no. It's tricky. You have to, when you have a customer who's soliciting for a bribe, you don't want to call the customer a crook, but you want to pay the bribe. So you you have to be experienced in how you politely say no without insulting anybody and you still get the business. And what happened, I think, in the Siemens world was they simply got used to paying it and they were afraid. And in fact, as we turned the spigots off, there were a lot of very angry customers and, and their agents and, and some pretty, you know, we were sued. And, you know, we, in principle, refused to settle and lost some of the cases to distributors, you know, whom we knew were paying bribes and maybe we couldn't prove it adequately. And they, you know, they beat us in court, but that was the cost of doing business. Long answer to a short question, the, the, the real answer was fear.
2: So I want to come back to the legal dimension of this, because, of course, when you came into Siemens, it wasn't just a matter of cleaning up the company because the leadership had changed. The leadership changed in part because of this scandal. uh, And there was a German element to it. And there was, of course, the U.S. element to it with the Enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. One question that a lot of people have about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and statutes like it in other countries is basically, does it work? Does it help? Um, do the existence of these laws make a substantial difference? And if so, how? And I'm curious for your general view about that. I mean, surely they must make some difference, but do you think that statutes like the FCPA, like the UK Bribery Act and so forth, have a substantial either deterrent effect or productive effect through some other mechanism in combating foreign bribery? Or do you think that they're mostly actually pretty marginal to where the real action is?
0: No, they're very effective. I mean, nothing focuses an executive's mind like the prospect of going to jail. And um, in most countries, there is an individual culpability. What's interesting is the fines, I think, aren't the big deterrent. It's the personal culpability, potential culpability of the officers and, and, and individuals that uh, gets everyone's attention. I mean, I can tell you in the boardrooms and in the management meetings, uh, this is taken very, very seriously. So. The answer is yes, they are effective.
2: Let me follow up directly on that, actually, because you emphasize the thing that really makes the difference is not so much the fines to the corporation, but the prospect of individual culpability. There is a criticism, a line of criticism about not so much the FCPA itself, but the way the Department of Justice and the SEC typically enforce that statute that follows actually very much what you were just saying. So the line of criticism, which I'm sure you've heard, goes something like this. There are a handful of cases where individual executives are held personally accountable and do jail time or suffer some kind of financial penalty. But the overwhelming majority of FCPA enforcement actions end through settlements, either plea bargain settlements or very often deferred prosecution or non-prosecution agreements with the corporation that lead to the corporation paying what looks to a civilian like me like a big dollar amount but maybe from the perspective of the corporation, not that large. So there's a line of criticism that says, actually, the DOJ's FCPA enforcement strategy is not terribly effective because of a drastic overemphasis on settling cases with corporations for uh, monetary penalties and far too little prosecution of individual bad actors. Do you think that that criticism is Apps, do you think it's off the mark? Like, what, what, what is your perspective? Because, as I'm sure you know, this is an active debate in the FCP world, FCPA world. A lot of people complain that, like, if the corporations just treat this as a cost of doing business, it doesn't really make much of a difference. And we need to put some more people in jail.
0: Well, there are a number of strands there. I would say the easy one for me to address is the monetary penalties. And you're right, they they sting, but they don't really do much damage. On the other hand, most of these cases in the sort of modern era are the result of Uh, self-disclosure and uh, cooperation, not all, but a lot. And companies have gotten very smart about racing to the courthouse and sort of the way the antitrust guys do uh, because you get better treatment that way. And So I think that some of the low uh, penalties may reflect that trend, which is a good thing. And for a lot of reasons, we can talk about that's exactly what you want. You want the incentives to drive that behavior. In terms of the prosecution of individuals, I'm really not a, a, a white collar crime expert. Uh, but I, what I will tell you is that I don't think anybody can predict how the prosecution of individuals is going to play out going forward. I mean, if you think about how these cases arise, starting with the original corrupt payment and then the discovery inside the company, assuming that it's not the CEO doing it himself, in the early stages, personal culpability is very much a reality. Now, the fact that later on it's pretty hard to prove individual culpability to to the level beyond a reasonable doubt, whichever com- country you're in. That's that, a lot of people study that I'm not an expert in it. I know it's very, I mean, look at the, the Tesco cases in, in London. It's very hard to prove an individual's responsibility when you've got a lot of corporate decision-making. I'll, I'll tell you one rather sad story. A very, very, very senior executive at Siemens during the uh, investigation told one of the investigating lawyers, you won't find my fingerprints on anything. So, pe- people are sufficiently worried about it that they take care even when they're engaging in corrupt acts. So, I think the answer to your question is it's pretty hard to prosecute and convict individuals in this area. And therefore, the corporate liability is terribly important. Another thing that happens, of course, is in some countries, particularly in Germany, when the company has to pay these massive fines, which, as you say, for a, for a civilian are enormous amounts of money, they turn around and sue the individual corporate officers in civil cases, for a breach of fiduciary duty and so forth. And that certainly focused the, the attention. So and, and certainly for European, I'm not sure how active that is in the United States, but certainly in Europe, that's a considerable concern for corporate executives.
2: So continuing on the theme of these settlement agreements, because again, most of these cases, my understanding is hardly any FCPA cases involving corporations go to trial. And that Some of the ones involving individuals go to trial, but again, there are not very many of them. So most of these cases are resolved out of court. And I gather that this is increasingly true in other countries as well, especially legal changes in several European jurisdictions and other jurisdictions as well have facilitated more kinds of resolutions that are kind of commonplace in the United States right now this practice, again, is controversial. Some people think that there should be more of this litigation or that the settlement process should be regulated more intensively. I remember a few years back, a group of non-governmental organizations sent a letter to the OECD basically calling for the OECD to issue um, standards and guidelines, some kind of best practices, or maybe even more some kind of binding agreement regulating non-trial resolutions. Given that you are chairing or have chaired a group for the International Bar Association called uh, Non-Trial Resolution, the Non-Trial Resolution Group. I am assuming you have both some expertise and some thoughts on this fraught question. I was wondering if you would be willing to share them with me and our listeners. More
0: really than happy to. And I, I think I was probably the author or co-author of that writing that you, you mentioned. We put together a group of NGOs, academics, uh, prosecutors from around the world, a few defense lawyers to try and come up with a set of uh, guidelines for settling foreign bribery cases that would satisfy everybody. You know, the NGOs and civil society would think there was enough blood spilt and the corporations would think that this set up the proper incentives. And sort of to get to the end of your question, it really, what what outcome do you want? I mean, do you just want to have a lot of trials with people, people going to jail? Do you want to diminish bribery? Do you want to suppress bribery? And the most potent... Uh, actors in that environment are the corporations. They've got the most money, they've got the most people, they dwarf governments in, in in the commercial space. And they've got the people on the ground, they've got the visibility. If you give them the proper incentives to, first of all, not do it at all, but when they discover it, as you say, it's an, if there's going to be some in you know, a large population frequently, what do you want them to do? You want them to stop it, to punish the, the wrongdoers and go to the government with what they found. And the deterrent of simply catching the bad guys when you can, peren, it's really, really hard. Government isn't really well suited to do that. They really rely on whistleblowers because they don't have the capacity to do the kinds of investigations that will be necessary to find undiscovered uh, bribery. The companies are going to find it first. If you want them to participate in squelching bribery, then you you have to give them incentive to cooperate. And that's what's going on. It's, it's, the, the Americans have industrialized it. And gradually, other countries, which have huge jurisprudential hurdles to overcome, are, are, have caught on that this makes sense. And that's a good thing. And I'm really pleased to report that our efforts with the OECD, which is really the sort of center of competence internationally for this sort of thing, uh, it seems well on its way to, in fact, publishing guidelines. Which will have a normative effect because, in, in, as you're very familiar, you're very aware of there, there's a peer review process among the member nations of the OECD, and this will become part of the benchmarking criteria as to how well they're enforcing the, uh, the anti bribery treaty. That's, that's a lot of stuff all in one answer, but there's a lot going on. It's all good, and it's mimicking to a large degree the American practice, which I think is a good one, of setting incentives so that you are focused on the prevention and uh, eradication of bribery rather than simply having a purely punitive system uh, for the sport of having, you know, punitive results.
2: So one element of the proposed guidelines for corporate settlements in in transnational bribery cases that I recall recall seeing in this NGO letter from a few years back, and I don't know if it was the same one you worked on or whether it might have been another one, because I know several Mm -hmm. people worked on that, but but it, it touched on Concerns about compensation for victims of bribery. And this is an an issue that's come up elsewhere as well. The World Bank-UN stolen asset recovery initiative several years back had a report that emphasized this theme. There is a concern, and again, I'm sure you're familiar with this, that when a company like Siemens settles with the US and German authorities, it pays a huge chunk of money to the German authorities that goes presumably into the German treasury and pays a huge chunk of money to the U.S. government, which goes into the uh, U.S. Treasury and the people in Argentina and Sri Lanka and wherever else uh, don't see any of that. So some people believe not only that stolen assets ought to be returned, but that fines and penalties levied on companies that engage in corrupt conduct that is potentially injurious to citizens of usually, though not always, poorer countries, should be should be part of the deal. And of course, we've got a few limited examples where this has happened, right? There was a foundation that was uh, set up, I think it was in Kazakhstan, in response to the settlement of one corporate case. There was, I think, in the UK, some of the UK Bribery Act settlements have resulted in providing money earmarked for health or education or or something like that, but it's not the standard practice. And my memory of this NGO letter that I saw several years ago to the OECD suggested not only that there should be standard practices for corporate settlements and bribery cases, but that this should be part of it. A standard part of transnational bribery settlement should be some form of, if, if not compensation exactly, restitution for the victims of bribery. And I'm wondering if you have a perspective on that set of proposals.
0: Well, I have to tell you, my mind has been changed on that topic by the real practitioners in the white collar uh, world. And the bottom line is, it's a nice idea and it has a certain uh, sense of justice to it, but it's incredibly complicated to get right and gums up the works and you shouldn't, you know, these, these settlements are hard enough as it is. And you should make that question of restitution or compensation really a government to government conversation not something that gets into the, the machinery of trying to settle one of these global bribery cases, which, which is which is hard enough as it is. Now we did one at Siemens. We, when we settled with the World Bank, we are so peddling, quotes, so when we set up a, an integrity initiative, which very controversially we ran. And one of the things we discovered and the World Bank discovered and everybody else discovers when they try and do these compensation things is it's really, really complicated and really, really hard. Who's a victim? And you start with that, uh, and where is the money going? Is it just going to go back to another numbered Swiss account where it came from, or where you know it might have come from? And you know who's deserving, who's controlling? It? And and of course, in the United States—you've got all kinds of questions about who could be heard, and, the, and it just gums up the works. I started off; and we had some rather mild language in our letters to the OECD and the so-called Recommendation Six Group, saying you ought know, at least look at this. You know. Much grinding and gnashing of teeth that are my friends from the Department of Justice. But the more we looked at it, the more we discussed it, we realized that it just made something that's already hard, maybe impossibly hard. And this should, is something that is a, you know, there ought to be some kind of restitution. But you know, the U.S. Treasury is a pretty big pot of money, and if you really want to do the right thing in country from, from the, for the people who've been harmed, then do it directly as part of a project run by people who know how to do this sort of thing. People who do not know how to do this sort of thing are federal prosecutors.
2: Interesting. Let me ask you another kind of question about settlements and the challenge of settlements that may actually relate to something you said earlier that we emphasized in our conversation about the Siemens case, which is that did, that did not involve only one jurisdiction. It involved two, jur- at least two jurisdictions. I mean, the two main ones were Germany and the United States. One trend that I think we've been seeing in the last decade or so is an increase in the, I don't know, multilateralization, if you will, of transnational bribery cases. And my impression, putting this pretty crudely, is that even though these cases are in some ways by definition multi-jurisdictional, because you have to have at least two, right, The if it's a foreign bribery case as opposed to a domestic bribery case, and in practice could be well more than two, right, a German company that does business in the U.K. and lists on a U.S. exchange that pays bribes in India, right? has probably in one bribe payment violated the law of at least four different jurisdictions. It used to be the case that basically, in many cases, the U.S. government was the only game in town, and that if you settled the case with the U.S., DOJ, and SEC, you were pretty much done. And in certain cases like Siemens, you'd get maybe one other jurisdiction from a wealthy OECD, and a wealthy OECD country involved. But now it seems like we're seeing an increase in enforcement on what you might call the demand side countries. So China, for example, is going after GSK and other pharma and other companies for bribes they're paying in China, even as those companies are under investigation by their home jurisdictions or places like the United States. And we're also seeing more examples where these are complex multinational deals and many different um, sovereigns may be involved. So part of me feels like this is a good thing more deterrence, and frankly, these countries' interests are all implicated, so they should all be involved. I have been told by practicing lawyers in both the government and private sector side that it certainly makes things more complicated, especially if you cannot be sure that just because you've settled your case with the U.S. government that you're done, and may also make it complicated when you're trying to figure out if you're going to self-disclose a violation to one enforcing jurisdiction, because even if you feel like those guys are reasonable people and you can work something out, maybe they're going to be six more. So that's a very long setup to the question, but I hope you see what I'm getting at. So from where you sit, having worked on one of these multi-jurisdictional cases, one of the first really big ones back in 2008, and having followed these issues closely for the last decade plus, what's your perspective on how the system generally should handle the increasing increasingly multi-jurisdictional nature of foreign bribery enforcement?
0: I'd say that the guidance on not piling on from the Justice Department and the similar guidance that we hope is going to come out of the OECD is incredibly helpful. Uh, The thing you worry about, of course, as as a company that's considering self-disclosure, as you suggested, is you don't want to be caught with sort of duplicative penalties all around the world. I mean, it's hard enough to settle in a bunch of different countries, um, with all the difficulties that go into the evidentiary situation and so forth. But what you're really worried about is all piling on and justice is very, I think intelligently given guidance on that. I think the OECD guidance is going to say the same thing, which will make self disclosure even smarter for a company that discovers foreign bribery in its, in its operations. I mean, there are two ways to look at this you're right in, in, in observing that there's been just a blooming of, of bribery enforcement cases from many different jurisdictions. Uh, one way to look at it is, of course, they've seen the huge amounts of money that the U.S. primarily has taken, and they want some of it, where uh, they want to control the prosecutions because it's their you know, their domestic country companies that are in the crosshairs. It's so one way to look at it. I've a slightly more positive, which is increasingly bribery has become a public topic. And People are sick of it. And the politicians and their officials have run to be at the head of the parade. And, and the most corrupt politicians in the world will campaign on combating corruption. Uh, so this, I think, is part of a healthy trend. But yes, it's more visible, but that's because there's more enforcement and people are taking it more seriously. I mean, who would have thought that Lula would go to jail? Which is just amazing. I mean, whether or not he belonged there. I mean, this really, Odebrecht, Mr. Odebrecht in jail, incredible, unthinkable. They were untouchable uh, years ago, and I think that has been a sea change, and that is something to be supported. And one way to support it is by internationalizing it through cooperation, uh, which I would say the Justice Department, U.S. Justice Department, has been very good at, and is getting better at as they, you know, agreed to share a little more. And I think these new rules coming out of the OECD will encourage prosecutors in other countries who are not trained in this, who are not sophisticated, in many cases, have no experience with settlements at all, much less international settlements. So I think this is a very hopeful trend if you're trying to do something about foreign bribery.
2: That's good. And it's definitely encouraging, I have to say. Let me broaden a little bit, because we've been talking about various aspects of foreign anti-bribery laws and how they're enforced and what makes them more effective or less effective. There are at various times, proposals to amend the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or similar laws in other countries. Uh, some people complain that laws aren't strong enough; they want stronger penalties, broader jurisdiction, etc. Other people complain that the laws are either excessive or badly designed. There, you know, occasionally we get these little FCPA reform movements bubbling up and then subsiding. Every once, and hey, the statute has been amended a couple of times. And again, in other countries, similar kinds of conversations in places like the United Kingdom, especially I'm familiar with some of the debates about the UK Bribery Act and the strengths and limitations. I'm sure there are similar debates in places like Germany, Canada, et cetera. So from where you sit, if you had the ear of let's stick with the United States for now, the US Congress and all of the right now, there's no oxygen for any of this right now, given everything else that's going on in Washington. But in our fantasy world, if you had the year of the US Congress Or let's say the Department of Justice and the SEC, but but focusing the statute itself and could recommend changes to the statute or the way that it's enforced. uh, Would you do so and what would they be? Where are the biggest weaknesses or problems? And also, I I will use this to, if you want, to take to take the opportunity to invite you to criticize other proposals that you know others have floated if you think that those kinds of changes are unnecessary or counterproductive. Let me start with the
0: last bit. I mean, there's a regular rhythm where the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is wrong on the wrong side of most issues, um, will go and talk about how this is unfairly burdening American companies and in international business. And they're just wrong. They're just ignorant. And, and you know, the piece I wrote about Exxon, American companies thrive because we're seen as being country, companies that do things right. I remember being, being told by a customer when I was at GE that there was a, a government minister who said he liked buying from GE because everybody in his ministry knew it was a clean purchase. Uh, it, it's not, a, anyway, sort of a burden on American business and Congress and should just not listen to those guys because they frankly don't know what they're talking about. Same story in Germany and, and in the UK, I and mean, the CBI says some singularly unhelpful things just displaying their fundamental ignorance of international business. If there's one thing i think in the in the u.s law i mean the u.s law is a little uh, adequate the, the more modern laws are, are, are tougher in many respects than the fcpa it comes as a great surprise to people that the uk bribery act and the and the, and the german law as written are tougher the u.s law has one um particularly uh, interesting artifact which is facilitation payments under american law you're allowed to pay small bribes for things you get anyway, you know, like some sort of customs brokers letting things, or customs officials letting stuff through, they, let, they ought to let through anyway. And that's kind of an unfortunate blemish and sends the wrong message. I mean, no sophisticated company allows them. I mean, it's, it's an artifact, but I think that should be done away with. In terms of the other, you know, complicated, you know, conspiracy and aiding and betting and so forth, all the, all the proof issues that my friends, the, the defense bar are worried about, I'm not the guy to ask. I'm not an expert on that stuff.
2: You said something really interesting, and I want to pursue it a bit more, which is that the Chamber of Commerce, the United States Chamber of Commerce, which is a basically a lobbying group that represents allegedly US industry, has been pushing what they call the FCPA reform agenda for a while. And this idea that dates back to the, the, the earliest days, right after right before and right after the FCPA was initially enacted, segments of the business community were loudly complaining that this is going to put us at a competitive disadvantage, the playing field is not level, uh, we're not going to be able to compete in these markets unless we're allowed to, you know, kind of a when in Rome, do as the Romans do, sort of attitude towards uh, bribery in foreign markets. You are not the first person I've spoken to with extensive experience at a major uh, multinational company that says that's just factually wrong that getting in the habit of paying bribes in the long term doesn't help you. It hurts you. And you say that the Chamber of Commerce doesn't know what they're talking about. So I scratch my head a little bit and wonder, like, where is this coming from? Do you think, and I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but it's, it's possible. So here's some hypotheses. One is it's possible they sincerely believe it. Because the Chamber of Commerce is composed of a bunch of people who don't necessarily have the kind of experience you have. And they generally have an instinctive reaction that when the government is imposing obligations on US companies that don't apply to other companies, it must be bad. Another possibility is that there's a substantial fraction that actually doesn't like the FCPA for other reasons or their US companies, but they really can't compete in foreign markets. And the Chamber of Commerce, you know, is responsive to multiple constituencies and these folks have kind of captured the lobbying group to advance their interests even though the claims they're making are not true in a broad sense. Third hypothesis, maybe a variation of the second one, but relates to something else I was going to ask you about. So I've heard folks say something like it's all well and good for the guy from GE and Siemens to talk about how, of course, we can do this and there's no problem and you can do well while doing good and so on and so forth because you're a huge company and can afford to have the greatest compliance department and so forth. But for smaller enterprises that are trying to break into foreign markets, even if they're not doing the old Siemens thing of having bribery as part of their business strategy, they're much more likely to have something uh, go wrong or have an employee screw up or just not have people trained in the right way and they're really going to get hammered or they're going to be deterred from entering foreign markets if they're not you know, big enough to afford the platinum plated compliance system that a GE or a Siemens can afford. So those are three hypotheses for why the Chamber of Commerce, and they're not alone, others, including our former president, have articulated this position. So I know it's totally an unfair question because I'm asking you to speculate, but can you speculate a little bit like why, where is this coming from?
0: I, you know, it's funny, I had some pretty interesting conversations with the then head of the Chamber of Commerce, Tom Donahue. Uh at the time this tongue he was just flat out wrong. He wasn't listening. I, I, I don't really don't know it's who he, he. he's not running it anymore. So I have no present uh, knowledge of what they're thinking. I, I just think that the, a lot of their constituency, I mean it's big tobacco and pizza companies. I mean, it's not really I don't think the big international companies show up there. I may be wrong. I just don't, I think they're listening to the wrong people. I'm just guessing. But I mean, to your, to your last point about, well, you know, little guys can't afford, that's just nonsense. I mean, the better leadership you have, the less compliance you need. You know, if you've got a small company, it's probably the owner is actually doing the business himself and he's got integrity and discipline. He knows he's got good products, most importantly. I mean, where, where bribery often pops up is where people got inferior products are trying to sell. And the only way to make that, the difference is by bribing somebody. I mean, I, another story, I. I you know, Siemens Telecoms business was sold off shortly before I got there, but it was one of the most uh, heavily involved in, in paying bribes. I remember one of their senior leaders, former senior leaders telling me, you know, if we use the 400 million euros or dollar rather actually $40 million that we admitted to paying in bribes on product development, we still have a telecoms business. I mean, there, there are a lot of issues going on in your question, but the most important one is you've got good products, good services, and most importantly, good leadership, sales leadership. You don't have to pay bribes. That's the fact. It has nothing to do with size. Size helps. I mean, his size it certainly helps because it gets people's attention. You've got bigger volumes, easier access to government, and so forth. But I've seen plenty of small companies for whom that was just their business—you know—strategy, culture, demeanor. They didn't pay bribes. They did very well. Bribery is not just dangerous; it's expensive.
2: So, a theme that I've seen emerge in our conversation which I very much hope is true, because in some ways it's a good and happy story, is that, in fact, a lot of the transnational bribery that we see in the world, and I think it remains, my impression, remains a very serious problem, notwithstanding the progress we've made against it in the last 20 years, is based on just a misperception, just wrong information, right? People believe, I think, that they confront a real trade-off in that if they try to act ethically and refuse to pay bribes, they'll be at a significant business disadvantage relative to their competitors who are less scrupulous. And overcoming that is really, really hard. But it sounds like one way, maybe the most optimistic way to understand the point that you're making is that not just for Siemens or GE, but generally, that's just not true. And that an individual company is likely to do better. Just business-wise, even if you don't care about ethics, which of course you should. But even if you didn't, you're going to do better business-wise if you adhere to a policy of just never paying bribes in foreign markets or any markets. Is that a fair characterization that once people figure this out, then we'll be in a much better place even if we didn't have aggressive laws like the FCPA and the UK Bribery Act? We need them you know for the outliers, but that most companies would figure out like they don't need to do this, and so they wouldn't out of economic self-interest.
0: Well, there are a lot of questions there. Let me start by saying, is that a fair characterization? Yes, it's a fact. It's a fact. I mean, good companies don't pay bribes because they don't have to. They've got good leadership. They're good. I mean, are you going to? There was a great training video that GE had where Keith Sharon, the then CFO, would say, look, we walk away from business every day. That's OK. It's not binary. I mean, yeah, you might lose some deals, You might, but, but not many, not relevant. Frankly, the deals are likely to come back to you. And having the discipline to say, OK, we walked away from that one, that's good. I remember Keith saying, we walk away from business. I mean, every day was probably an exaggeration, but you know it was good for the training of 350,000 employees, giving them courage to say, I'm going to walk out of the room because Keith and the leadership at GE had the knowledge that that customer would be back because we had great products, great services. I was many years ago working on a deal as outside counsel to GE and the guy on the other side of the table representing a very large German company that later went under said to me, you guys have got a natural advantage, three, seven percent, because they don't ask you anymore. They know you're not paying. And they know we've got baked into our budgets. And he went on to say, one of the big problems we have is we send these guys out to difficult parts of the world, they learn how to pay bribes and they bring that practice home. And that has been corrosive in our company. Now they later went under and were bought up by Daimler, but I thought that was pretty pretty strong evidence for the point you're making.
2: Great. So, so we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you about one other thing uh, that's been bubbling up right now in the anti-corruption reform agenda in the United States. And to frame this, uh, maybe I'll, I'll make the following observation. So one, I don't know if criticism is the right way to put it, but observation many people make about the FCPA, the UK Bribery Act and so forth. that so they're focused on what we sometimes call the supply side, the companies that are paying the bribes. But, as you said earlier in our conversation, often this starts with the solicitation by mm-hmm. foreign government. So interesting, you say always. I gather, it, depending on who you talk to, I will say there's a different perception. So typically, when I talk to people who come out of multinational companies, law firms, and so forth, you know the good people who are trying to clean things up, they say, this always starts when the foreign government official hits us up for money. When I talk to people from other communities, including people in developing country governments and so forth, they have this perception, at least, that some companies, not yours, but some companies, think about Walmart in Mexico, for example. That the, The findings there were not, Walmart tried to say, we were the hapless victims of these avaricious government officials, but at least... Some characterizations of that case was actually Walmart was an instigator of corrupting these people by bank. So but let's assume for the moment that it's if it's either it's always as you say or often. The laws on the books currently target the bribe payers. Now, presumably the countries where the corruption takes place have their own laws against their public officials paying bribes, but that's not something, for example, the US government focuses on. So if a US company pays bribes in India, even if those bribes were as the result of solicitation slash extortion by the Indian government officials, the U.S. law will target the U.S. company. As you likely are aware, there are legislative proposals, current, which currently are getting some traction in the U.S. Congress, that would make it a violation of U.S. law for a foreign official to attempt to extort bribes from U.S. nationals, U.S. companies or citizens. I believe uh, the different versions have different names, but there's the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act is the name that that I think at least the early version of this legislation had. What do you think about that? Uh, From your perspective of someone who's served as a high-level lawyer for the companies, thinking about the dynamics, thinking about the interactions between the foreign officials and the company representatives, thinking about the legal issues that may or may not be involved, do you think this would be helpful, counterproductive, or probably neutral with respect to encouraging greater integrity in international business transactions?
0: I think it's mean, This is frankly the first I've heard of it. I haven't been following it. It sounds like a great idea. I mean, having been at the receiving end of some of these conversations, it's amazing the impunity with which you are solicited. And I mean, coming to a point we haven't really covered what government, you know, the local government, the so-called demand that government is the problem, then it's harder. And having some, again, fear of personal consequences, Magnitsky Act kinds of stuff for some of these guys would not be a bad thing. I mean, I was in a meeting in a number of years ago in Mexico. A few days later, the guy on the other side of the table was in jail. Um, I can imagine in countries which have a lot of commerce with the United States, the notion that you could be Uh, at least barred from going to your villa in California might have a normative effect because there's no, either there's no local enforcement or the government is the problem. And uh, I think that could be quite useful for American companies. But again, this is, you know, coming out this cold, I haven't really thought about it much.
2: Interesting. Well, it's certainly interesting to see if it happens. I mean, there are all sorts of challenges, you know, in terms of getting jurisdiction over these people. But as you say, it may function as a de facto travel ban. Um, well,
0: they hide their assets in the U.S. I mean, we're yeah, like, exactly. sadly a haven for money launderers.
2: So. Exactly. So, so we're almost out of time, which is a shame because there's so many other things that we could discuss. But let me give you the opportunity at the end of our conversation just to ask you in an open-ended way if there are other things you would like to share with me and our listeners about what you have learned from your experience addressing this issue of transnational bribery for, at this point, such a long period of your career, and looking forward what you think the big issues and challenges are going to be. So, so basically an open-ended invitation to offer some final thoughts to, to me and to our audience about this topic.
0: I think we should all be hopeful. I think we're making incredible progress. I think the Americans should be very proud, even if it was for the wrong reasons, but what uh, they achieved with the FCPA and, and the Germans and the British and so We're making tremendous progress. It is having good effects the world is getting better in this area, I believe, from having experienced it on the ground in business and from seeing what's going on in the legal field. So I, I think there's real uh, opportunity here for hope, and I hope you all feel it.
2: That's a wonderful note on which to end. And I have to say, it, particularly because as someone who works in this area, there's a lot of pessimism with respect to the fight against corruption. There's a lot of a sense that you know, things aren't getting any better; they're actually getting worse. You know, the the assessments in terms of perceived corruption for most countries seem not to change from year to year. In our earlier in our conversation, I alluded to the fact that many people have complained that the FCPA has not actually had much of an effect on changing corporate behavior. So I have to say it's it's wonderful and encouraging to hear uh, with the perspective that you do bring to bear on this issue, given how long you've been working on it and in what capacity, uh, this message of hope that things are getting better and could continue to get better if we continue to work at it. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your appearance on the podcast today. Thanks for having
0: me. It was fun.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Peter's work, check out the show notes of this episode. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter under at kickbackgap. We look forward to seeing you under the hashtag kickbackmeetup. If you want to support this podcast even further, write us a review on your favorite podcast platform or if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash kickbackpodcast. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Koebes, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleimpers and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.